Hi friends, producer Heidi here. A quick note before today's episode. Due to some technical glitches, you may notice some audio loss in a few places. However, the message of the episode still shines through. So please enjoy this week's conversation with Betsy Singleton Snyder. Welcome back to JOY, a podcast from St. Margaret's Episcopal Church in Little Rock, Arkansas, where our conversations about life and faith always include Jesus, others, and you. My guest today was nominated by a member of the St. Margaret's community who asked me to reach out to Betsy Singleton Snyder. Betsy is a United Methodist minister here in Little Rock, and she is also an author and a community activist, as well as being a wife and a mother. Betsy, thank you for joining me for this podcast. I am very glad to be here, Mary. During this season, I plan to do at least a few episodes that are simply focused on sharing our faith stories. I really never get tired, I think, of hearing about how people have experienced God, how they have navigated life, and what folks have learned about who they are along the way. So Betsy, I'd like to spend our time today getting to know about your journey. Let's start with the basics. Where are you from? I'm from Little Rock, Arkansas. You've stayed close to home. How nice. I moved to Arkansas in 2011, and we've really enjoyed it here. Little Rock is a great place to live. My family actually moved to Louisiana. I spent about three years there before I started school, before my parents moved back. So I have a little bit of Louisiana in me. So did you grow up in the United Methodist tradition? I did. I was baptized as an infant or an eight-month-old. I actually discovered the exact time I was about eight months old, and it was on Palm Sunday. And so I didn't know that for a long time, but my mother actually kept the bulletin from the day, which has Jesus riding a donkey in the palms, the certificate. It's actually framed in my office. I was nurtured in the United Methodist tradition, but as I grew up, I went to so many different churches because it's the Bible Belt. Friends who were Church of Christ, Baptist, Nazarene, Assembly of God, pretty much everything, Catholic. So I would go to Wednesday evenings sometimes, you know, other worship times. My mom was very open about me doing that, which I think was a good thing. Gave me permission to explore. So along this path where you're exploring many different traditions, where did you first meet God? Did you have an experience where you felt like you were introduced to God on a personal level? I think for me, I don't have a story that I can specifically say, oh, in that moment was more a continuing, nurturing presence. In the United Methodist tradition, we talk about the three modes of grace, prevenient, meaning Wesley called it, John Wesley called it preventing grace, which sounds kind of odd, but prevenient grace, meaning the grace that comes before we're ever aware. It's always at work in our lives, even before we can respond. That's my belief. And I felt that along the way without knowing or having words for it. There were certainly some moments that I have gone back to. My parents helped to start a church in Louisiana, a United Methodist Church. 
And I have this distinct memory of us going up for communion. And back then we didn't use a common cup like we do now. And most United Methodists do now. But we'd go to the altar rail and there would be the little great juice glasses. <laughs> I do love to have the wine in the common cup. So when I'm with my Episcopalian friends, I did a Daughters of the King event last year with Bishop Benfield. And it was so nice and warm going down. I was like, this is the way it's supposed to be. <laughs> <laughs> I have Episcopalian in my blood. Well, my grandparents were United Methodists. My dad grew up in that tradition. And I can remember the trays with the little grape juice glasses. I have this memory of going back to the altar multiple times. While the adults were talking after the service, I would sip the juice out of the unused glasses that was left. And thinking about that, I thought, wow, nobody ever got on to me. Maybe I didn't get caught. (laughs) (laughs) My mother was a great theological mentor. She was a Sunday school teacher. I sometimes think she might have become a pastor if it had been a different time. She always answered my questions. She never made me feel inferior or like it was a bad question or don't say that or don't ask that or that's a bad thing. So I was really encouraged. My baby brother and his wife, when they had their boy, who was about three at the time, they were worshiping in the United Methodist Church in Marion, Arkansas. Their son was about three. And my sister-in-law grew up in the Baptist Church. She's a very great Methodist now, but it was still kind of new to her back then. They had communion that Sunday and my mom was there with them. And so they were leaving Paul behind. And so my mother asked my sister-in-law, why isn't Paul going up for communion? And my sister-in-law said, well, he doesn't understand it. And my mother said, well, do you? (laughs) (laughs) The mystery of Holy Communion is always present in my experience of it. I think we can talk about it a lot and we can have theological conversations and those are certainly important as we seek to find truth and speak it. I also think there is a mystery to it that makes it incomprehensible at some level. I agree. I feel very fortunate that I was raised also in the church at a time in the church where I was welcome to communion as a young child. It's just like I've never known the experience of being excluded from God's table. Not everybody can say that, and I'm so grateful for that deep truth that was instilled in me. Right. I always experienced that. Now, a lot of the traditions that my friends were in when I was in high school, there really wasn't a celebration of communion regularly. I did not experience being barred from communion or not having an open table until I went to the Catholic church with friends. I do understand why people choose to do that. I don't agree with it. Honestly, one of my best friends in seminary was a young woman. We were very close and she wanted to be a hospital chaplain. So she did the Master of Divinity, went to Notre Dame, pretty Catholic. And I remember for a long time, she wouldn't take communion at Perkins Chapel at SMU where we were studying. I remember one day she finally started taking communion and I asked her about it. And she said, it's like going to a birthday party and refusing the cake. That changed that for her. I was like, oh, the Methodist seminary is working. (laughs) (laughs) We were in seminary 87 to 91. Also thought women would be ordained, surely by now. (laughs) (laughs) 
So that hasn't happened. We're seeing this actually now in the Catholic Church, that as women become more active and do more and more things in the church, which they are, then it will become tradition. Tradition, we can say, oh, yes, we've been doing that. That's tradition. We will keep praying and it'll happen. God will bring it about. So how has God shaped your life along the way? Well, and shape is and nurture and nudge and constant presence. Those are the words that I would use. Mm -hmm. And it's always been a series. Maybe at one point it was a person, new awareness, a new calling or purpose, or confronted me with some things about myself that needed to change. So there's always been a strong sense for me that this is a journey and I'm tasked with continuing to grow, calling on, as Wesley identified it, the means of grace study and worship and prayer and fasting. And I add to that now exercise. I -hmm. think the body is something we've got to realize is not separated from our spirits, not just a matter of health, but it's a matter of stewarding what God has given us as the whole person. So I, I add that now to my list of spiritual disciplines. We actually started sunset yoga when I first came to my new appointment. Did it on the parking lot, you know, in the midst of COVID. And then when it got too cold and dark, we moved it to Zoom. Zoom yoga with prayer. You mm-hmm. have a person who leads it. It's wonderful. Virtual, yes, but you still feel a sense of God's presence in the midst of the technology and the strangeness. It's been a real comfort to a number of our folks and folks from beyond our community too. We've also done some yoga classes here. And when we moved them outside because of COVID, we found there was a special blessing to it. (laughs) There was a reluctance to try it outside at first, but there's something really beautiful about being outdoors and stretching and praying and breathing. And we found that too. And your campus like ours, a lot of trees, a lot of woods around us. And even though we had to come to the back of the parking lot, the highway can be kind of loud, aren't right in the midst of the yard. But that worked out beautifully and we were able to really enjoy. And I never got hot. And this was in August. We started at seven in the evening. It was sunset yoga. So, (laughs) right. (laughs) It was just a real gift. There was always like this little breeze, it seemed like. I don't know where it came from. And just to be in that space in your body, be attuned to the way that you're not sometimes indoors. At some point, you discerned a call to become a pastor. How did that work for you? Well, I have to confess that I have some clergy in my background in our family. (laughs) Interesting thing is the church I'm serving now, Winfield, the, the first three were downtown. And the final one downtown was at 16th and Louisiana. The church moved west and merged with another Methodist congregation, Mountain View, on this property. But I served the third location that was built in 1926. I was the pastor there for eight years. So that was kind of interesting because I have these distinct memories. My grandmother and my great-grandmother were members there for a time. My mother and my father and several of my siblings before I ever was born were of Winfield. But then when it became Quapaw Quarter, I became the pastor there for eight years. 
when I got here, I was looking at the, there's a metal file box in a closet with all these really old index cards. So I started looking and I found my great grandmother's membership card. I found my grandmother's card and the person who received my grandmother into membership in 1916 (laughs) was Reverend Dr. Daniel Hammonds. And that was my great-grandmother's brother. So it was my great-uncle. He was vice president of Hendricks College and a Methodist pastor. I never realized that he had been a pastor at Winfield. (laughs) That and my oldest brother, Jack, was a pastor and went to Hendricks and actually was youth director at Pulaski Heights, where I've served twice now. And that's Mm -hmm. my church at the time. Kenneth Shamblin, who was the pastor there, encouraged him to go to Hendricks because he was at ULR. Now you need to go to a Methodist school. So he transferred to Hendricks. (laughs) And then went to SMU and I was determined not to go that route of SMU. And I ended up there anyway, which was a great thing for me. But my brother's influence, which he had a very huge heart for social justice, particularly race relations. He was at Selma when the call went out to a lot of clergy and people of all walks in 1964. He actually took students from Hendricks in his latter years to an odyssey, a civil rights pilgrimage along the way, and had dear friends in Marion, Alabama, outside of Selma, sign Methodist Church. So he would preach there some. Those sorts of things have a pretty profound influence on my call. I took a lot of religion courses my junior and senior year at First time, I think the Bible came alive for me in a new way. American religious thought and history. I actually didn't avail myself of taking world religions or things that some people do. I ended up having a world religions class in seminary, but I just fell in love. I had a class called Biblical Literature and Thought. You know, I did a lot of things like youth ministry. My mother and I, we'd have a season where for Lent, we would do a book together. And so all of those things I think they moved me (laughs) along the path. And then I graduated from Hendrix, went to UT Austin for a semester in communication, said, this is not very meaningful to me. I don't think I want to sell things. I was planning on getting a master's in communication. Then I decided, well, since I'm an English major and I love writing, I will work toward getting into an MFA program and teach creative writing. So I took two more years of French and writing classes at ULR. Then I started getting so involved in my home church for teaching Sunday school. I started making phone calls on Sunday nights to visitors. And the associate pastor there at the time said, I think you have a call to ministry. You know, I acknowledged that I was interested in exploring that. This sounds so random, but I applied to three writing programs and three seminaries. (laughs) (laughs) I got two really good offers. I realized, okay, I can't just say, oh, I can afford to go to seminary because I can afford to go to writing school too. I don't have to go to seminary because God says I have to. God has also made a way for me to go to a writing program. Mm -hmm. When it came down to it, though, I said, I have to go to seminary. It was a choice. And interestingly enough, when I got there, a lot of narrative Preaching and narrative theology, things like that were really being discussed. All the writing and the English major background kind of kicked in. That was fun. Well, and ministry is something, in my experience, that uses writing so much. Maybe more so than, you know, in the 21st century. 
It's not just preaching. It's also all the newsletter articles. <laughs> One of the things my older brother said is to me, as I really was trying to figure this out, and he had planted the seed several years before you ought to think about ministry because it's all the things you like. It's theology. It's people. Things that you like to do. I said, I don't want to work on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> there is that. <laughs> that went away. (laughs) (laughs) Just so many seeds and so many saints, right? So many saints around you, my family, but also people in the church. One of my good friends in ministry, his dad, when I was in the youth group at this particular church where I was confirmed, Hunter, United Methodist, his dad did my confirmation and I ended up speaking that day. I still have the index cards I did it. And then a boy did it. Another 12 year old boy did his part. And the boy talked about the potlucks and all this wonderful fun that we had. And then I talked about commitment. (laughs) (laughs) I think I was on this path a lot sooner than than (laughs) Than you realized. I, I was a very kind of a nerdy youth in that way. I really took it seriously. Well, I can relate (laughs) for sure. Well, you've been doing this now for 30 years. What has changed for you over time or what blessings have you realized? What have the sacrifices been? I think for me and perhaps you and so many others who are in ordained ministry, this has been the most, as I look at it from a historical standpoint, although we're in the midst of it, the technological digital age has had the greatest impact on my ministry. People don't just come to church anymore. Rarely, rarely do they come because they moved into a new neighborhood or moved to a new town. A lot of people don't do that anymore. And in 30, 40, 50 years ago, especially in this part of the country, you look mm-hmm. for your church when you move in, you know, and we had neighborhood churches have cars and you don't, you can pick the time you can choose not to come and you have a lot more competition. I mean, the movie theaters used to not even be open on Sundays, right? We live in a world that's very competitive for people's attention. And now with digital, there's just a lot of competition for people's attention Mm -hmm. and many, many, many distractions. And so I have found that to be a challenge, maybe a good challenge, because I've also found that during this time of the pandemic, we've had about 12 people join. And I think it's interesting that okay, I'm new and we're trying to get our message out in a different way, but you've got to really want to do charge to join during a pandemic. Yeah. (laughs) It's a challenging time. And I have really actually grown a lot. I would have never anticipated this many changes when I entered ministry. I just thought people like me went to charge. The word evangelism has always been a hard word for me because it was so associated, particularly in this region of the country with, you know, saving lost souls rather than I came to learn that for me, salvation is about wholeness, which is really closer to the Greek sozo, the wholeness, the word meaning salvation in the New Testament. 
that concept, I don't see that the way some Christians see that or understand that. So how do we offer wholeness? Mm-hmm. What is whole in 2021? I've been looking over some books last week or so. What am I going to be reading for Lent? What kind of studies? Things like that. And I saw a book called Uncomfortable. And I started looking at it. I'm not familiar with the author. It's by a younger man. And essentially, the summary was, you're not supposed to be comfortable in church. (laughs) (laughs) He's saying, you know, we've gotten so used to comfort in everything. Our beds, our food, everything Mm -hmm. is comfort. And so, yes, of course, there are times we have to comfort each other in grief and sickness. But his point is that in church, as a community, you're not going to get a sermon that you think every week fits your criteria or makes you comfortable. Hopefully, you're not going to get people every week or every with whom you serve that make you comfortable. So I was really resonating with that. And I think especially in the culture we're living in that's so divided politically, just never seen a time. The closest I can come to this is the 60s, the late 60s. I'm old enough that I remember I was little, but, you know, I remember the figures on our television of Vietnam and the fighting and the soldiers. And it was like every night. I remember as a kid thinking, why does this just keep going on? Why do we see this every night? And then there was a lot of division among the society over race and gender equality in Vietnam. And then we had Watergate. And not unlike that time and this time, we have so much division and disjointedness. I think a lot of people want a church community where it's just people who are like them (laughs) and where they can feel comfortable. And yet that's not the church community that can make them whole. And that's what we're going for, that salvation of being bound together through love. A lot of writers now use, instead of the word kingdom, they use kingdom, uh, that we're related. For a long time, I've been preaching, water is thicker than blood in the church. Your baptism, your entrance into the church, your vows to follow Jesus Christ with this particular group of people too, wherever that is, that is not about blood. Water is thicker than blood in the church. I preached a sermon at Trinity United Methodist, and I had a lady who had been a Baptist most of her life and had kind of come back into the church, and she was older, probably about my age now, (laughs) (laughs) but very savvy, very fun. And one Sunday, I said, I hear all the time, Jesus died for me. Jesus died for me. I said, let's put that in context by saying first, Jesus lived and lives for me. It was like a light bulb went on and Jane pulled me aside and she goes, I love that. (laughs) (laughs) To her, this constant death, death, death without any connection to life, resurrection and the life to come was out of context, out of the whole life and the whole ministry of Jesus, which is what we're supposed to be living out of. And Paul talks so much about we already are dead. We already are in that state. Be aware, you're already there, and resurrection's already here. Last Sunday's election was calling of the four disciples. It's here. Here it is. And so many 
people are like, oh, you know, it's after I die, it's later sometime. Well, excuse me, you're already dead. That's what Paul says. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. We're in the in-between. I get it. Not quite there, but the focus in the church too much. Maybe this is partly American Protestantism, which is the cross or death. I don't even want to say the cross, but death has become more of the means of salvation mm-hmm. rather than the narrative of Jesus' life. Just a death alone without the context of the entire life that's lived makes any sense. There's already been a sense of sacrificial giving animals, things like that. I mean, we've talked about that before, and I see how the church came to embrace Jesus' death in that way. But also, I'll just say, I don't think Jesus' death was a requirement, something that happened in the context of sin. Love expresses itself in such community and embraces everybody. It makes people angry. I think that's part of what we're seeing right now. We're seeing people say, this group of people is not worthy of full love or full acceptance. They're less than. And when we say that, we're saying they're not made in the image of God. It's blasphemy. That's exactly, that's blasphemous. So anti-Christian. The death of Christ is our rejection of God's love. I've had that tension throughout my ministry of how to talk about the wholeness involved in the process of salvation. And it's not this just moment. And then Mm -hmm. I don't worry about developing anything beyond that. I don't look at how I'm living. I don't look at my sin, frailties, and my limitations, which we all have. I mean, we all have that. There's a lot of righteous talk going on, especially in the political sphere right now, too, about who's right. That's called righteous talk to me. Self-righteous, too. I'm more righteous than you, but what I hear is you're being self-righteous. You're saying that you don't stink. (laughs) (laughs) Because I want to be right, so I'm going to make myself look good, or at least better than you. A lot of that right now is I'm going to make you look better. I'll look better. But truly, it's only God who can bring us into that right relationship, and that's really what righteousness is. passion for life and wholeness. Betsy, I've come to admire you here in Little Rock because you're so well known for being an advocate for social justice in our local community. What are the connections between your theology and your advocacy? What are the issues that you're especially passionate about and why? Well, I do think that it it is formed by the doctrine of the image of God. We are made in the image Mm -hmm. of God, everyone. We have a lot to learn from our brothers with disabilities who have come to say, look, I'm not flawed. This is me. I'm whole. And so I think that has been a real gift to the church as well as our culture and society as we have been asked, what is the standard by which we are measuring the image of God? One of the things that I think is really important is to have imagery around you that expresses what other people look like. Recently, I have removed a picture of Jesus, blue eyes. (laughs) (laughs) 
doesn't look very Hebrew to me. Therefore, he doesn't look like a lot of people around the world. One of my favorite artists is Kelly Lattimore. And I have some of Kelly's work. And it's an interesting story how that happened. I was reading the Christian Century magazine one day. Mm -hmm. Near the back was a piece of art. And it was obviously a migrant or undocumented family that were running, that were in contemporary clothes, a mother, a father, and a child. But I was like, that is amazing. I love that. And I looked down, saw the guy's name. And because we live in a digital age, I got on Google and found yeah. him. And start write him and ask him what kinds of art he had for sales prints as well as uh, canvases and so forth. I purchased a painting of Fannie Lou Hamer, the great civil rights activist. That was my first painting. And she's actually in jail. It's the famous picture of her in the yellow dress. They're icons. So oh. each people that are portrayed has a halo around them. They're a saint. I purchased Mahalia Jackson. When my brother died unexpectedly, who had been a real foot soldier and influenced me, I asked Kelly if he could do a piece of some of my favorites on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. So I have a painting in our home now, and it has an Orthodox Archbishop is portrayed on there. Then there's my brother. He's in his little graduation photo. He looks really young. We talked about whether he should be older or younger. But because John Lewis and Dr. King and Coretta and Rosa Parks, they all are in what we typically would see them in. John Lewis has his backpack on and his trench coat and stuff. Mm -hmm. I had a young man from Princeton. I think he might be the chaplain there, but he got a hold of me through Twitter because he purchased a copy of that for a display. And he wanted to know about my brother because my brother's not famous. Right. <laughs> but he was there. Ordinary person, though. Who made a difference in his way throughout the rest of his life. I tell this story. We have human relations Sunday. It always falls on the Sunday before Dr. King's birthday is celebrated. But my brother was in the student council, student body at SMU when he was there as a seminary student. And Dr. King was not the Dr. King. He was, as his daughter said recently, Bernice King said that he was the most hated man in America when he was killed. This was back in the day when things were not everybody wanted to introduce Dr. King. So my brother ended up introducing him for oh, this wow. at SMU. My brother asked him, what I call you? Well, my friends call me ML. And he said, well, what should I call you? And my brother, whose name was Jack, he said, just Jack. Is it Dr. King would call him just Jack. He really saw in my brother, here's a fellow human being on the journey who's trying to be an ally. I can get really easily choked up talking about those kinds of moments. Rested in Dallas while studying with another student who was Black at the Waffle House. It was the Huddle House. The police escort, they called the dean, Dean Quillian, wonderful man. He went and got them out of jail and said, what do you want to do now? And they said, we want to go back to the huddle house. Dean and my brother and his friend went back to the huddle house and then they all three got arrested. And what's really wonderful about that is, let's think about this in the early 60s. So a dean of a United Methodist Seminary or a Methodist Seminary, a powerful school, Southern Methodist with pretty powerful, you know, backers. Mm -hmm. And that dean gets arrested. People with power stand up. The church has to notice. It may not fall easily, but they're on the right side. 
that's part of our ancestry. And I'm not mean mine personally, I mean the church, the law and the prophets fulfilled. And that's part of who we are and called to be is to continue to fulfill, love God, love neighbor. The summary of all their work, of all of the saints. The last portrait I had done, I'd already gotten the painting of my brother and all the famous foot soldiers and civil rights activists on the Pettus Bridge. But then John Lewis, right about the time I got it, he passed away. My husband served with Representative Lewis. I have pictures of Representative Lewis holding my fat, chubby baby. Oh, nice. (laughs) Of course, admired him so, so much. Good trouble, necessary trouble. Kelly sent me, the artist sent me a note and said, Betsy, I'm doing a portrait of John Lewis. Don't feel that you have to purchase it because there'll be copies, but I did want to give you first right of refusal. (laughs) (laughs) How much? And he sent a price, which was very reasonable. And I said, absolutely. So we opened it last night and put it up next to the bridge. (laughs) (laughs) It's John in a blue suit and his face is so determined. So determined to get in trouble. I've been caught off guard in the last decade or more of where we actually are in our country with race relations and with the issues of justice. It's not that I thought all that was solved. No, I had no illusions about that, but it has become so much more plain to me that now is not the time to be quiet. Now is not the time to sit on the sidelines. It's time to step it up. The moment when George Floyd, when all that came out was difficult, but painful, horrible. But right before that, I read about Ahmaud Arbery's death initially when it came out in the news. And then I continued to kind of look for information about it because it didn't look right. But then Mm -hmm. we started the video. New York Times had a It was the way the truck that was following with the two white men, three men in all, the son being the one who actually shot him Mm -hmm. and the man recording that. And I saw the the ways that Ahmaud Arbery tried to run from Mm -hmm. and kept being cornered. And the horror I felt at that as the mother of four boys made a donation to Ahmaud Arbery, his mother, and I couldn't sleep one night. So this was before George Floyd's murder. And I actually went on to the Equal Justice Initiative website. It was like three in the morning. And I read the lynching report on there. And I've never been to that museum. You know, it's only been open, I guess, since 2017. Brian Stevenson, who wrote Just Mercy. Some of you may remember that book and the movie that came out. Very Mm -hmm. powerful. I read the lynching report. I was horrified to see how many lynchings Arkansas has had. Really blown away because per capita, it seemed really out of whack to me. I started reading about the Memorial Project on there, and this is where they go and they locate soil at a site where a lynching victim was killed, and they collect the soil. And it's a very sacred kind of act in reclaiming identity and humanity. And then those are given eventually back to the museum. And if you go on the museum site, you can see pictures in kind of these clear jars. Mm -hmm. Most of them have a name, but some of them are unknown. 
I've seen pictures from the museum and I've had two of my brothers, Jack being one of them. And then my baby brother also and his wife went to the museum and talked to Kathy Webb, actually. It's one of those things that like the Holocaust Museum, so powerful. But I found on the website a lot of the things that I'm interested in working on. And I found an organization called Coming to the Table. And I joined that and Mm -hmm. led me to reach out to Kwame and Clarice Abdul-Bay, Arkansas Peace and Justice Memorial Movement. That led me this past year to try to step up my efforts, learning more about what I can do and about their work, which is so impressive. They've done so much, and I'm so thankful that we have them here. Many people are working on these very difficult issues. It's about human life. That's been a part of the more recent things that I've been interested in. Also, and you probably maybe been doing some work with um, Braver Angels. I started learning about Braver Angels and trying to find ways that maybe my church and our community. Braver Angels, I think, has some really great tools. I think that right now it's really hard to separate the political divide and also the justice issues. The pain and the grief that we experience in observing the injustice and the indignities of our world, it also can be a source of first motivation. I know when I experience that, sometimes I just have to stop and say, okay, well, I guess I still have work to do. This is part of the call that we all have as Christians. But then that also leads to a sense of joy. Maybe it's not perfection. Maybe it's not, okay, the world is all fixed now. But there is a joy that comes when we get to do something to promote good in the world. is not the same as comfort about the, that whole yeah. idea trying to find a church that makes you comfortable or people who make you comfortable. One of the hardest things in opening my eyes even more, the violence that black and brown people, black people in particular, have been experiencing. Yes, it's out there, but I think Ahmaud Arbery, for me, as well as going on the Equal Justice Initiative page and looking at the lynchings, the reality of the lynchings, and then understanding what a terror lynching is. And it finally sunk in that it's terror, and it was used to terrify people and to continue a form of slavery in the same way that mass incarceration. Watching the documentary 13th, that also was yet another, oh, yes, I see this very clearly, see what we're talking about, how Jim Crow and slavery continues to manifest in new ways. But I felt that Ahmaud Arbery was literally chased down and murdered. There was something in that. And I want to tell you that this artist, I wish I had the picture of it. He sent me a couple of postcards with my John Lewis, and I've seen the painting. It sold like right away. But he did a rendering of George Floyd 
arms of his mother and it looks like Jesus and Mary, but the face mm-hmm. are of George Floyd. I sent him a message. I said, Kelly, that is so powerful. Here's another example of how love gets attacked. He had a lot of really negative, hateful speech on his social media for that painting. It was heartbreaking to me. I saw another victim of violence and it was so easy to connect the dots. Of course, Jesus too was the victim of a violent mob and it was sanctioned by the government and carried out by the government. And here I'm I'm talking in my white privilege. I mean, I realized that as a mom, my husband and I both have felt that it's really important for our kids to be public schools. Now, that's our choice. And I do appreciate people have to make all kinds of decisions for a lot of different reasons because children are all Mm -hmm. very, but we've been very lucky in that our boys have found a home in the Little Rock Public Schools. It's been a very difficult year, but my oldest son just went to Central and Mm -hmm. he's been going to Central for many reasons, partly the history, partly what he knows about Central Another irony of this, or maybe you could say it's just a coincidence, my brother and my brother-in-law graduated in 1956 from Central. At that point, my brother went to UALR. This is before he moved to Hendricks, where he turned the call to ministry and pastor had encouraged him to move to Hendricks. So he was taking classes at LRU, Little Rock University, (laughs) and he actually witnessed Elizabeth Eckford on the bench. And that was his moment, too, I think, of something has to be different. He later told all of us he really wanted to go sit down by her. So I don't know exactly where all of this comes from within me. I do think a lot of it's part of the way I was raised, the way we talked about things. And be assured, I think that all of us have grown over time. I know my siblings and my sister, she worked for the school district in the math department downtown. And she said this, we were talking because I love the Black National Anthem and we actually sang it for our closing service on the mm-hmm. Sunday, Dr. King's birthday. And I was thrilled to do that because I just love it. I was saying to my sister, she has several really, really dear friends, Black women, and they have stayed in touch even after their retirement. And she talks about how much she's learned over the years. She was laughing because I said, now, when you watch this week online, we're going to do the Black National Anthem. So be sure you stay for the whole thing, <laughs> including the closing hymn. She said, did I ever tell you how Leola had to school me about the Black National Anthem? <laughs> I said, no. What? And she said, well, Melinda... And Leola and I were at a school district thing and we sang the Black National Anthem. And she said, I didn't even know there was a Black National Anthem back then. And she said, well, I don't understand. Why do we need a Black National Anthem? (laughs) And then she said, I'm a lot more woke now, aren't I? And she's 78. So she's my big sister. And we've shared those moments on the journey of learning things that we didn't know and can kind of laugh about it. I think now kind of some of the things that you're so unaware of, the white world that you live in, the closed off world. I think uh, Congressman Clyburn has suggested that we make that the national hymn. And I think that's why I brought it up too. And I said, oh, have you heard Representative Clyburn is doing something? (laughs) (laughs) Tell me what you're feeling hopeful about these days. Or what are you hoping for? Well, the first step to addressing any problem in which we find ourselves hurting other people, betraying other people, limiting other people, 
is to see it. That's what gives me hope. I think we are seeing what the reality of our society is right now. We are seeing not everyone wants to see this. Not everyone wants to have these conversations, but because enough people see it Mm -hmm. and acknowledge it, I think that the conversations are moving forward and are by a lot more people that we cannot do this. We have got to try to make the changes in our society to fully include everybody. Another one that was really hard for me that I thought really sniffed of something is definitely rotten. And that was Sandra Bland. I read a lot about her story and I never, ever believed that Sandra Bland committed suicide. How does that happen? How did they rule that? I just could not believe that given that woman's story and strength. And so if there's not justice for one, then there's really no justice for any. But as you said, if we can see what we're facing, then we can talk about it and hopefully address it. It's painful. Introspection and identifying what's wrong, not my favorite thing to do. No. (laughs) I should be used to it as a pastor by now, but I'm not. And as a Christian, I feel when I do take account of the wrongs that I have done, the things that I have said, or even thoughts that I have had that are not just, then there's something very liberating about saying, yeah, I have done that. I have seen this in myself as well as my neighbors. Let's see what we can do next. God, how can you help me help others move along this journey? I don't want to alienate my members or others that I come in contact with, but sometimes there does need to be confrontation and confrontation can be helpful. We get that in this coming Sunday's gospel. It's come to mean something negative, but I often point out, remember, Jesus was confrontational many times. Didn't let people sit in their comfort when they needed to see something different in themselves or in the world. So confrontation can be a blessing. I think it's really important for us to work on is this idea that we have to be nice all the time. Because if our lives are at stake, nice doesn't cut it. In the Sunday's gospel from Mark, Jesus's first act is an exorcism to confront that powerful force that has that man trapped. He can't even speak Uh for him. Nothing can come out of him because of what is possessing him. It's a great text for right now. I think it's a reminder that Jesus is here to bring the kingdom. That means defeating those dark forces that imprison us. My husband loves this section of our baptismal vows. And I have a teacher, actually, that these (laughs) kind of come out of our general conference work full inclusion with the LGBTQ community. And we're still dealing with that as well. And it's resists evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves. That baptismal vow, if I believe that that is stronger than blood or stronger than whiteness, then I am called to front the powers and principality that keep people locked in prisons 
Well, Betsy, you have made my joy complete today. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining me for this. I'm really glad for the opportunity to get to know you better. For our listeners, I want you to know that Betsy publishes a regular blog, which you can read on her website. You'll find it at BetsySingletonSnyder.com. And thank you all for listening today. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions, send me an email at mvano at stmargaretschurch.org. And please join us again next time because our JOY is not complete without you. This is a production of St. Margaret's Episcopal Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. Thanks to Stephen Vano, who composed and performed our theme music, and to Heidi Soule, our producer.